I invite you now to turn once again in your scriptures to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. We continue our study of this book this morning through verses 11, beginning in verse 11 through verse 19. Now, in our last sermon from Hebrews two weeks ago, we were instructed about the example of Melchizedek, who was, of, of course, this somewhat obscure priest king in the Old Testament. We read about in Genesis 14. We see his example utilized in Psalm 110, and then, of course, expounded for us here in the book of Hebrews. We looked specifically at his example, and the whole purpose of that passage was to demonstrate how this Melchizedek, as a priest king, was distinct and unique from the Levitical priesthood. That is the priesthood we read about in the book of Exodus, in the book of Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, for that matter, as well. Now, what that passage did for us was hold forth Christ in the example of Melchizedek, so that we could better understand Christ as our Lord and Savior. After all, that's what the entire purpose of the Bible is. So we must hold firmly then this fact in our minds as we study this passage today, that Christ is an eternal high priest after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of Aaron or Levi. Okay, that's our starting point. And with that as our starting point, our text today points us to four realities about the change in this priesthood. That is the change from the Levitical priesthood to the priesthood of Christ after the order of Melchizedek. So I invite you now to look at verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 7. And let's read through verse 19. God's word says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Where on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Let's pray. Father, grant to us understanding through the Spirit in our study of this passage. We come to you through Christ as our great high priest, and we confess, O Lord, that your word is living, breathing, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and that it is sufficient for all matters of faith and godliness. Work in us by it, Lord to accomplish your will in us, to bring glory to your name, to build our joy in the Lord. For Christ's sake, amen. 
Well, as you may have noticed, the author is at this point taking for granted that there has, in fact, been a change in the priesthood. As we've already mentioned, he made that point quite explicitly, that in the coming of Christ, and particularly in his death, resurrection, and ascension, there has been a change in the priesthood. He's established that, and now he's moving on to the implications of that. You know, kind of answering the question, okay, what does it mean for us? Why is it significant? Now, it's good for us to keep ourselves anchored to one of the key themes of this book as we approach this passage, or any passage in Hebrews for that matter. And that key theme is that Jesus is greater. Uh, the question is, greater than what? Well, greater than everything. Jesus is greater. And the particular scope of that theme in Hebrews is, of course, the Old Testament law. But the whole idea is, don't look to anything else, look to Christ. There is nothing better, no angel, no apostle, no prophet, no further revelation. There's nothing else to which we may look, for all is realized in Christ. Now, it may be a little bit difficult for us to comprehend then why anyone would entertain the notion of returning to the Old Testament system when Christ has come. For us, that probably seems a little bit like a foreign concept. But I want you to consider the general human tendency that, that we all have to stick with what's familiar. Now, maybe not every single person is that way. But I think most of us are. I know I certainly have that tendency because there's been plenty of times that I have passed on a particular opportunity, a good opportunity to do this or to do that, simply because I was comfortable with what I knew. And there's just that fear of stepping out into the discomfort. You want to stick with what you know. It's comfortable. It's normal. It's regular. You feel like you have a handle on it. And so you're just going to stick with that. And we all tend to do that to some degree or another. And that seems to be the mindset, uh, perhaps among these first century Christians that this author is writing to concerning Christ. There was some level of familiarity, of comfort with the old way. And so there was a tendency then to turn back to it, rather than to move forward in pursuing Christ. And so what the author does then is he makes it his purpose to show them the wonderful realities about Jesus' priesthood, that it is greater, it is better in, in every way, and ultimately it offers to us a better hope. So the first way he does that then is simply in verse 11 and verse 12, he shows us that a change in the priesthood means a change in the law. And this first point really gets to one of the most important issues at hand, which is that the law and the priesthood were basically a package deal. They were certainly distinct, but they were inseparable. The law and the priesthood went together, and you could not wrest them from one another. And so the argument is that if one changes, so does the other. And remember, he's already established that there's been a change in the priesthood that Christ has been appointed, appointed a high priest forever after Melchizedek. So that is change, which necessarily means what? There must have been a change then in the law. And those are the two primary points being made in those first two verses. Change in the priesthood means there's been a change in the law. Now, 
This is where we kind of got into some of this discussion, actually quite a bit of this discussion uh, in our study of the confession on the chapter of the law of God. When the author is speaking of the law here, he's specifically referring to the law as that which regulated the priesthood. And the reason that matters is we want to be clear that he's not speaking of the law in the most general sense to encompass every one of the laws, the moral law, the judicial law, the ceremonial law, but particularly what is in view here is that ceremonial law because that is the, the portion of the law that specifically concerned the priesthood, which obviously is in view. And so while we can certainly make many faithful applications from this text regarding the law in the broader sense, we need to make sure that we don't misunderstand the argument here because this is a place where some have went astray by simply saying, well, it says the law has completely changed. Therefore, all of the Old Testament law in all of its forms and every one of its administrations, it's gone. We need no longer look at it, think about it, obey it, or whatever. But truly, um, as our confession teaches, that is not the case. Certainly, the ceremonial law has been abrogated. But nevertheless, this is the moral law, that which God requires, remains. And for the Christian, it points him to Christ, and it also directs him in how he may glorify Christ in his living. But to return back to the argument at hand, there's been a change in the priesthood. Christ has come in a superior priesthood to that of Levi, or that of Aaron, as the text says. And this new and better priesthood was typified by Melchizedek. And so then, what does that mean for the change in the law? Well, notice also there the implication of that statement, that if there's a change in the law, then the author is also bringing in the gospel under that term law. Again, we don't want to be confused here. In that sense, he's referring to the law simply as a regulation. Right Under the old covenant, you had the law which regulated the worship of God's people. In the New Covenant, you have the gospel, which in a sense regulates the worship of God by his people. And so he's comparing and contrasting these two things, the old and the new. Now why that matters is because it's the same idea that Jesus addressed when he spoke about not putting new wine into old wineskins, which is, again is a foreign concept to us. And also where he spoke about not sewing a piece of unshrunken cloth onto an, an old garment. For if you do, the, the new will shrink and it will pull away and make a worse tear than was there in the beginning. What does all that have to do with the law and the gospel, or rather the old covenant and the new covenant? Well, what Jesus was getting at and what the author of Hebrews is getting at is that in this sense, new and old do not mix. Now, that might sound funny to our ears at first because one of our central Reformed conviction is that there is very clear continuity from Old Covenant to New Covenant or from Old Testament to New Testament. But what we're, is in view here is not the continuity, but rather what is distinct about the New Covenant from the Old. To state it differently, it's vitally important to understand that we cannot syncretize the old and the new covenant. And I, I've kind of noticed this trend kind of in more charismatic type circles, but 
there's this trend where they want to start bringing in imagery and elements of Old Testament tabernacle worship and bring it into Christian worship. And they started observing Jewish holidays and things like that. And what they're doing is syncretizing the Old and New Covenants. And what the author of Hebrews would be saying to that is, by no means, because those things were types and shadows of what was to come. And now the greater thing has come in Christ. And so we don't need those old things. We have the substance of what those things pointed to, Jesus Christ. To illustrate it differently, we ought not view Christ as the final piece of the puzzle, as it were. As if we had all these 99 pieces and he's the 100 that fits perfectly in that blank space. But rather Christ is the fulfillment of what the law pointed to. And when something is fulfilled, it has served its purpose. Now that doesn't mean it is to be disregarded as unimportant, but it's to be understood in terms of its fulfillment. To try and maintain it, that is to try and maintain that Old Testament ceremonial law in particular and the priesthood by which it, or that regulated it, would be to completely misunderstand the purpose of Christ. And so therefore, we must be clear that the new covenant is in this regard definitely new. And that's going to be the subject of chapter 8, which we will get to in the coming weeks. But I also want to address something here, because if you look down at the last verse which we read, verse 19, that verse concludes, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. We kind of held that forth as kind of the key statement of this passage. A better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now again, we want to understand what that means. That is not saying that under the old covenant, people could not draw near to God. Okay, Notice the comparative term, better. And so in this sense, it, it is not a statement of coming from no hope to hope, but rather coming from hope to a better hope. And, and here's why that is so important for us to understand. It really comes down to our understanding of sacramental language and the concept of sacraments in the Scriptures. Now, by a sacrament, you know, to, to put it in... Our own words, we simply mean a means of grace, something which God gives and through which he communicates divine grace. Now, there were sacraments in the Old Testament. There are sacraments in the New Testament. But why that matters is we want to understand that it wasn't as if there was no hope, no assurance, no forgiveness of sins under the Old Covenant. Later on, we're going to read in the book of Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. But what that's speaking of is the thing itself. What that's saying is that physical blood of the bulls and goats, that physical blood cannot accomplish redemption. But for that time, for that administration of the covenant of grace, God did communicate grace through it. By participating in what God had provided, he communicated grace to those who participated by faith. But the, the substance of that grace, the object which accomplished that forgiveness was Christ. He was the one attached to those 
symbols, to those sacraments. And so we want to be clear on that because, again, we don't want to disregard that old covenant. And this goes to show you some of the continuity between the two. We don't want to disregard it. It served its purpose, and it was an effective purpose under that old administration. But now that which it pointed to has come, and that is Christ. And so in short, this is fulfillment language regarding the priesthood of Christ. The second thing the author moves on to in verses 13 and 14, establishing there's been a change in the priesthood and necessarily a change in the law, is he turns to Jesus' lineage to show that Jesus' lineage shows that the priesthood has in fact changed. Now, you all know that those genealogies in the Bible are important. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there, right? But the chances are you often struggle to find the importance in them. And here is one example of how they are important. Both Matthew and Luke offer to us genealogies of the Lord Jesus Christ in their Gospels. And they both testify that Jesus descended in his earthly parentage from Judah. Now that matters to our topic today because it serves to show how Jesus is not like Aaron or Levi. And just so we're clear on that, Aaron was of the tribe of Levi. So the Levitical tribe, the tribe of Levi, were to be the priestly tribe. And then Aaron was held up as the first high priest, and the high priest descended from him there on down the line. But what the author is saying is, Jesus is not like them in this regard. He did not come from the tribe of Levi. Moses never said anything about Judah being a priestly tribe. To give you a couple of examples, in Numbers 18 and verse 20, and the following verses, as a matter of fact, the Lord specifically declared there that Aaron and the Levites were not to receive a land inheritance in the promised land because the Lord was their inheritance, right? They served the temple. Likewise, you can contrast that in Joshua 15, once they come into the promised land, that Judah, the tribe of Judah, did receive a land inheritance because they were not priests. And so the point of all of this is to show that Jesus' priesthood is in no way dependent upon Aaron's priesthood. Right? In other words, as the text says in verse 16, he did not become a priest by bodily descent. Again, the emphasis here is the newness of Jesus' priesthood. And that may not seem like something that we need to emphasize so much, but it matters a great deal. It goes to show how we must not conflate the priesthood of Jesus with the priesthood of Levi. Now, are there similarities? Certainly. I mean, absolutely. I mean, just think of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. Uh, the, the whole process there, one of the key image, images we see there in that text is that the high priest lays his hands and, and symbolically conveys the sin of the people of Israel onto this scapegoat and then sends it off. That is a picture of the gospel in a sense. But what he's doing here is showing the uniqueness of Christ, to show that he doesn't come in the line of Levi, because if he did, we would expect him then to be a priest just like Levi. That is one who would live, who would continually serve at the altar, but would never fully atone for sins, would die and must be replaced by another, 
in a system that goes on perpetually forever and ever, never, as the text says, accomplishing perfection. But as we read, perfection is possible and has been accomplished in Christ. Now in verse 15, it really kind of tacks on to that idea of Jesus' genealogy. But there, it picks up and it helps us understand that if we really dig in and, and think through the Old Covenant system and some implications, we can make some interesting observations about that. One of these is that the Levites were no more worthy of the priesthood than anyone else in Israel. What I mean by that is there was nothing special about them. There was nothing more holy about them, at least as far as their natural person went, than the rest of their brothers. But rather, by God's decree, he chose them out, and he decided, again, by his sovereign will, to appoint them as priests. And so then, they didn't become individually priests by their worthiness, but rather by their lineage. Right? It passed down from father to son, and so on and so forth. You were simply born into it. The contrast to that in verses 15 through 17 is that Christ became a high priest by virtue of his worthiness to fill the office. The third point being, Jesus receives his priesthood in a greater way. Now I want you to remember how the author of Hebrews emphasized the way in which Jesus received his priesthood. It was not inherent to him as the Son of God. You remember that? Remember, we said, in his very nature, as the Son of God, a priesthood is not required. Because a priesthood relates to mankind. But God does not need mankind in any way, shape, or form to define who he is. And so the priesthood is not inherent to who Jesus is, but rather it is something he was appointed to at a certain time in which he took upon himself. And the way he did this was through his resurrection and ascension. In his ascension, he was seated as a high priest. Remember in chapter 5 and verse 5, it says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. What's interesting about that is that's a quotation of Psalm 2, which is a royal psalm, and primarily focused on the kingship of Christ. But yet the author of Hebrews takes that and says, no, this applies actually to the priesthood. You are my son, today I have begotten you, is language that refers to Christ being appointed a high priest. And so when we studied that passage, we saw this put before us. And so though he came to be our merciful and faithful high priest, he did not officially take up that office until he rose from the dead and was subsequently seated after his ascension at the right hand of the Father on high. And that's confirmed then here in verse 16, where it says, He became a priest by the power of an indestructible life. Notice the causality there. He became a priest by the power of an indestructible life. Further confirming what we've said, and contrasting him to the Levites who did not receive their priesthood according to anything in them, but simply by their genealogy. 
And that in itself, as we said, spoke to its temporary nature. We contrast that with Christ in that his indestructible life speaks a better word to the eternal, unchanging nature of that priesthood, which we recognize all the way back in chapter 1, that it accomplishes exactly what it sets out to accomplish. Now here's a key piece of theology, and one of the ways in which we see that the resurrection of Christ matters. Now, we know that it matters, but sometimes, you know, we don't necessarily think through all of the implications of that. But when you think about uh, people who start to drift from the truth of the Scriptures, you think about the drift into liberalism that happened in the late 1800s, early 1900s. One of the key doctrines that very quickly came to fall by the wayside was the doctrine of the resurrection. And what they basically did, you say, well, we understand that if you lose the resurrection, then what do you have left? Well, it's because for them, what the Bible became about was simply the moral teaching of Jesus. It was just how to live a better life, how to be nicer, how to care for your neighbors, that sort of thing. The supernatural didn't matter. Man doesn't actually need to be saved under that sort of theology. But remember what Paul says. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, If Christ is not, has not been raised from the dead, then we are still in our sins, and we are of all people most to be pitied in the world. So again, here's another reason why the resurrection of Christ matters. The resurrection of Christ confirms the completion of his work, because only if he himself were raised from the dead could death truly be defeated. And so that is in view here. The specific thrust of this text is to show that the resurrection qualified Christ to become our high priest eternally. He was not raised. We do not have a merciful and faithful high priest. But in fact, he has been raised. And thus, the eternal nature of this priesthood, where it says there he became a priest by the power of an indestructible life, that says to us that this priesthood is effective. Now, I want to return and just mention again, we've got to be careful. We don't want to denigrate the Levitical priesthood in this. And neither does the author of Hebrews. It was good for what God intended it for, but that purpose has been fulfilled. And so the argument is kind of like this. Would you rather have somebody working for you that was given the job just because of who their parents were, not because they're able to perform it, not because of any ability in themselves or effectiveness in themselves, or would you rather have somebody who earned it? We have someone who earned it. His life, death, and resurrection, that is of Christ, testifies to it. And so what that means for us then, if we turn to that old priesthood or insert anything in that sentence, if we return to anything, we turn to anything looking for assurance, for salvation, for hope, for peace, we will never find it. But if we turn to Christ, we can have that perfect assurance that we have exactly what we need, an eternal, faithful, effectual high priest before God. And therefore, we are restored to God really and truly. And that gets into the drawing near to God. Because even though the Old Testament saints could draw near to God in a sense, by faith, they could have fellowship with Him, it was not as fully realized as it is for us. 
And the temple worship illustrated that with the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the tabernacle. Man could not enter in there, only the high priest, and at that once a year, after a very elaborate system of cleansing, it served to show that there was still a separation. What the Bible testified is that Jesus has broken down that dividing wall. He has restored us to God himself, and therefore, verses 18 and 19, this new priesthood offers to us a better hope. Here we come back once again, I've already mentioned it, but to that doctrine of assurance that God desires and has provided for his people to have true assurance. And I think we struggle to believe that sometimes, even as Reformed believers. We might confess it, but to experience it is another matter. But that that is what God wants for his people. That's what God wants for you, is to be assured of his grace, of his salvation, of his love for you. But what this text reminds us is that it cannot and will not come through your ability to be obedient, as important as it is. It will not come through your ability to do enough good works or in any way to please God. Rather, it only comes through resting upon Christ himself, who is our better hope. Now, it says here that a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. That word set aside carries the sense of annulled, right? It's like a law which a judge later rules is invalid. It's taken it away. It is annulled, gotten rid of. And again, that commandment that is particularly in view is the law as it regulated the priesthood. That's the context of our passage. And we need to be clear on this because, as we said, the Bible does not teach that the law was, has been abrogated in every respect. That is, in every possible sense but rather only insofar as it was unique and binding upon Israel as a unique people of God under the Old Covenant. And that's also why then the weakness or the uselessness of the law is not inherent to it. Right? If the law was inherently weak and useless, then that would speak a negative word against God in whom there is no imperfection. Rather, the weakness and uselessness is found in the people that depend upon it or the people upon whom it depended for its accomplishment, right? For the law to be fulfilled, it depended on the people. They were the ones who were unable to keep it. And specifically, though, the priest. The priests, according to the law, were unable to actually achieve that fulfillment that it pointed to. Again, the sacrifices kept going. Could never fully atone for sin. But we also... As we said, want to be clear that the worship and sacrifice of all of that that was administered by the priest was not ineffectual. We've already touched on that. I won't go into it again, but I do just want to simply share with you this quote from Calvin that I think reiterates the point quite well. He says, What Moses everywhere testifies that God would be pacified by sacrifices and that sins would be expiated, that is, dealt with, done away with, did not properly belong to sacrifices but were only adventitious to them. And he explains further what he means. He says, For as all types had a reference to Christ, so from him they derived all their virtue and effect. Nay, of themselves they availed nothing or affected nothing, but their whole efficacy depended on Christ alone. That is, under the old covenant, in all the sacrifices, they depended even then on Christ. That is the sacramental nature of that Old Testament system 
Which brings us then to the pinnacle of the argument that the Levitical priesthood is shown to be weak and it is in fact set aside, but that Christ offers us an even better hope. That is, it is not a bad thing that this priesthood has been set aside as though we have lost something. But rather, no, in it being set aside, we have gained a better hope. The law, the sacrifices, the Levitical priesthood, they were not useless prior to Christ's coming. They all pointed to him. But they were lacking and unable to perfect those who draw near. And that word perfect or perfection, as it's used in the text, becomes kind of a key word for the next couple of chapters because the way it is used is in the sense of completion. For something to be perfected is for something to be completed. And so in other words, the Old Testament system couldn't bring completion to what it pointed to. Christ has brought that completion. And since that is the case, it renders the temporary null and void. This line of argumentation supports the conclusion that what is specifically in view is that priesthood of Levi. And just to kind of give you an idea of what we mean by that, consider how Jesus said, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Or consider where Paul more devotionally applies the same concept and says, What then shall we say in Romans 7, 7? that the law is sin by no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So in conclusion... The text points us back to this fact that we possess, it belongs to us, a better hope guaranteed by this priesthood of Christ. Now lots of Christians that we will run into are intimidated or even worse, indifferent toward deep theology. And the author of Hebrews himself even admits that these things can be difficult to explain. Remember he said that in an earlier chapter. But we see here why deep theology matters. It's maybe difficult to wrap our minds around all these different concepts of the Old Testament priesthood and the priesthood of Christ. But it matters because in plumbing the depths of who Christ is, we come to know him as he is. And again, we are not saved by the magnitude of our faith. We're saved by Christ, the one in whom our faith rests. He's the Savior of our souls, and we come to know Him as such, the guarantee of our forgiveness, the one who brings us into an everlasting relationship with the living God. So from this text then, we ought to be encouraged once more not to look anywhere else for what can only be found in Christ, and let that be your message to others. Remember, that's, that's the devotional aspect of theology. It affects us, but it's to flow out from us. It's to affect our neighbors because we are to be salt and light to the world. We have a hope that the world needs. And the church should by no means be silent because when we proclaim Christ, we offer out life to our neighbors, the only source of life to our neighbors. And we magnify the name of Christ our Savior.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word as always. Our hearts are encouraged as we look at Christ, as we rest upon him. And we pray, Father, that you would um, encourage all of us in our devotions, Lord, to dive deeply, to plumb the depths of the theology of the word of God, not for the sake of what it is just as knowledge, but rather for the sake of knowing the one whom it describes to us, that we may know you better. For God, you are our life, our joy, and our hope. We thank you, Lord, for bringing us into this hope. We ask now, Father, that you would bless us with the blessing you intend, that, Lord, you would help us to receive all that comes from your hand as intended for our good, for our building up um, in our walk with Christ. Lord, have your way among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.